0: Before we dive into the episode with Arzu, I've just got some announcements. Today marks our first episode in March, which means it's donation time. Every month, I donate $1 for every patron we have to a charity. By the time I'm recording the intro, we have 12 dazzling patrons, which means I'm donating $12 to the Sunflower of Peace. Recently, Russia launched a totally unjustified and abhorrent invasion into Ukraine. Sunflower of Peace is currently providing backpacks to Ukrainian soldiers, citizens, and volunteers designed for groups of 5-10 to people, which include a variety of first aid supplies. If you'd like to donate or find out more, you can do so through the link to their fundraising page on Facebook in the episode description. I want to take a moment to thank our patrons for making this show possible. Your amazing generosity keeps me going every day and helps me to produce the best show that I can. Thank you so much. I want to give a special thanks to our patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. If anyone wants to join our Patreon and get access to bonus audio, bloopers, a bonus show, and more, you can do so for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com outerrimreads outer rim reads. I've also got an update on our new merch. As of now, our new design from Master and Apprentice of Obi-Wan with his orange lightsaber is available on t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. There are different backdrops for the design as well, with backgrounds of blue, red, and green. If you use the code YOUNGWAN20, that's Y-O-U-N-G-W-A-N-20, just the number, you can save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's YOUNGWAN20 for 20% off your purchase. Now for our search or reading segment. Last episode's question was, at multiple points in the episode, we saw the Jedi do whatever it took to accomplish their mission, even if it meant being willing to lay down their life for others. Which of these moments stood out to you the most, and why? On Discord, Doug wrote, I think Bell stepping up to defend against the second Nihil strafe run is my pick. Unlike Porter or Loden or Taami, he's not at all certain in that moment. He doesn't think he can do what his master just did, but he's ready to do it anyway because it has to be done. Thanks for the response, Doug. I 100% agree, and Bell has another great moment in this episode, too. Now let's get into the end of Part 2 of Light of the Jedi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to Episode 53 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Gahan, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we'll be finishing up Part 2 of Light of the Jedi, covering Chapters 33, 34, 35, and the interlude, and I'm joined by the host of the Space Waffles podcast, Arzu Amin. Arzu. Arzu. How are you doing today? Thanks for being on the show.
1: I'm doing good. I'm I'm excited to be here. As I was telling you before we recorded, I'm scared that I won't be able to stay so- spoiler free, but I will do my best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, uh, all of the guests this season, I think all but maybe all but one have read the book before, and they have all done a fantastic job. So I've got. Full confidence in you. I think it's. I think it's going to be great. We've got some great chapters, but uh, I, I think it should be a really good discussion with within the text that we've got. As we were saying off air, some some reading comp, right?
1: Yeah, like a reading <laughs> comp exercise.
0: Exactly. Uh, but I mean, we've got some really good ones, like to close out part two. But before we even dive into the chapters and the interlude as well, for the listeners, could you? talk a little bit about your background with Star Wars, your introduction to the fandom, and then also specifically with Light of the Jedi and how you came across the book and your experience uh, when you read it for the first time.
1: Sure. So my background with Star Wars, I think a lot of us have this story is, you know, being a kid, parents have the box set of the OT and it's like, guess what's happening? You're watching this now. So my parents showed it to my brother and I, I think in the lead up to the Phantom Menace, because they knew it was coming. And they're like, okay, let's get them ready. So I liked the OT. I was like, this is cool. There's a princess. I'm on board. And then Phantom Menace comes out. And I'm like, there's a queen. And she's got pretty dresses. And like me being eight years old, I was like, this is everything. I had the paper dolls. I was like, yes, I'm all about this. And then that Plus then Obi-Wan Kenobi just becoming my favorite character coming out of this. Like <laughs> Ewan McGregor's take on it. I'm like, Alec Guinness who? It's Ewan McGregor. So I was all about this through the prequels. Just the movies, not anything really beyond that. And then it kind of eased off after that and became a comfort watch. And then The Force Awakens get announced, gets announced. And, you know, right as I'm starting grad school, so I am stressed out. I'm like, okay, we're going back into Star Wars because first of all, it's always been there, kind of back of my mind. I'm like, now there's new stuff. Let's do it. So dive into the sequels. And I'm like, yes, I'm all about this life. Like Ray becomes a number one character for me. Deep dive into the fandom, particularly following The Last Jedi, because I've said this before, I lost an argument with somebody about The Last Jedi. And I'm like, never again will I lose an argument about Star Wars. <laughs> so I'm like, out of pure spite... In the need to prepare myself, I decided that's it. I'm reading all the books, all of the canon stuff. Wow. And that's when it went from like I enjoy this to sort of a deeper fandom involvement. So rewatching slash watching all of the animation and kind of kind of getting into all that. So then moving into Light of the Jedi then when they announced this huge publishing initiative and it's all book focused and like also comic book focused, which I'm not a huge reader of, but I have been reading these ones. I'm like, yes, okay, because it's totally removed from the movies. It's not dependent on it. It's not like pulling a little bit from this, a little bit from that. It's totally standing on its own. I wasn't 100% sure of it when the concept art came out because I'm like, this looks like so many characters and I'm not going to be able to keep them all straight. and None of this is going to make any sense. And then Light of the Jedi came out. It's like, yeah, you have all of these names, but then it very quickly streamlines into like 10 to 12 people that you really need to follow. And I'm like, okay, I'm sold. And immediately just very invested in the High Republic after that. That was a long rant.
0: (laughs) I mean, I have to wonder. In some ways it feels like we started out with a lot of names and then a lot of people died. And so we are left with
1: the (laughs) budget. It's like, oh this person's important. And then two minutes later it's like, Oh no, never mind. Oh.
0: two words later oh oh i guess not <laughs>
1: like i think it was chapter two or something the the guy who really wanted to ask out that waitress uh, and i'm like oh i hope he gets to
0: <laughs> poor marvin i think marvin oh getter God. from um, that don't don't bring me back to that
1: <laughs> i'm sorry i live i live with the, the pain of him and the one who was reading romance novels on her ipad when she was supposed to be working which just felt very personal <laughs> <laughs> that's what i do so those two in particular are like the hardest losses in this book for me.
0: That's when Light of the Jedi became personal to you. After that, after they took those two characters from you, you're like, all right. Like, That's
1: it. <laughs> the, the High Republic the, is paying. The gloves are
0: off, Charles. <laughs> I do have to ask also, uh, just because it seems like a lot stemmed from the lost argument. The the Last Jedi, the lost argument that, uh, that kind of spurred your kind of quest to consume all of the canon material. What was the argument about that kind of like began it all?
1: That the movie made no sense. Did you which side I was of arguing the that it you- does. <laughs> and the person I was arguing with said no it doesn't. And I'm like, but there's precedent for every single thing you're saying doesn't make sense. I'm sure there's precedent for this. And he, and then, you know, he was like, no, blah, blah 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 like this. And if you think of it, like it w- it was typical like I didn't like it. Therefore, it doesn't make sense. Uh, Yeah,
0: classic. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like,
1: but like the Holdo maneuver, there's precedent for. And this, there's precedent for. And that, there's precedent for. So I'm like, well, I need to be better prepared in case this comes up again. And to me, losing the argument means I didn't convince him. He didn't convince me. It doesn't make sense. I still think it does. But I didn't make my point. (laughs) So I'm like, this isn't going to like next time if somebody wants to like back me into that argument again, I can throw the book at them literally and then they will be forced to admit that the only reason it doesn't make sense, quote unquote, is because they didn't like it, which is fine, but it's not the same argument.
0: Now everything makes more sense because when, when you said that you lost the argument of the movie making sense, I started to be like, wait, it doesn't make sense. I thought it does. Like- no, it, do- it absolutely <laughs> does make
1: sense. I just lost. I lost the conversation, I should say, because sure. I didn't convince him that I was right
0: well in that respect I'm glad that you lost the argument because look where you are now <laughs> you,
1: honestly you, I think you wound up working out for the best
0: you win you you won the long game the I end the game so you won this st- <laughs> thank you for joining this episode we'll see you next- <laughs> Oh, That is, is absolutely fantastic, and, and that now sets a new goal of mine to one day consume all of or as much of the canon as I possibly can, but I'm glad to have you on to, to chat about this book, these chapters, to close out this part of what's been a phenomenal ride. Uh, it's really been a fantastic book that I wish I could have blown through uh, at my own leisure, but alas, spoiler uh, I am <laughs> spoiler in free, awe but...
1: of your restraint, <laughs> I should say.
0: Me too, right? (laughs) Uh, But we've got some good ones ahead of us. I can give my summary for Chapter 33, and then we can talk about this kind of conference, I guess, with the Chancellor. (laughs) Aboard the Third Horizon, Avar Chris attends a meeting with the rest of the Emergences task force, including Chancellor So, to assess everything they've learned about the Legacy Run's fate. As they watch the footage salvaged from the Legacy Run's flight recorder, they are able to confirm the Nihil's direct involvement in the Great Disaster. Chancellor So asks how this is even possible, as a Nihil ship flew across the Legacy Run's hyperspace lane. Marlow and Veles Santeca assure her that it should be impossible, but Avar and Elzarman both sense they're hiding something. Much to Senator Noor's increased exasperation and frustration, Chancellor So decides to maintain her Outer Rim lane closure upon learning the Nihil might have some secret understanding about hyperspace. Ultimately, the Chancellor orders Admiral Crenara to gather a fleet to hunt down the Nihil and bring every last one of them to justice. This chapter and the next one and the next... But I guess especially 33 and 34 paired together. To me, it I really sense kind of the climactic moment of the book is, mm-hmm. like, is nigh. It is upon us and it's really being set up here. What did you think about chapter 33? It wasn't entirely long. I mean, neither of the chapters that we've got today really are, but they're still packed. So what did you think about chapter 33?
1: I remember thinking... The first time. It completely changed my perception of hyperspace as a whole. Because I I guess it does make sense that it is a singular path that you travel. But I kind of thought, no matter where you are, I guess you can just jump to hyperspace. But earlier they talked about hyperspace lanes, but like it is a literal lane. It's like a shipping lane. And I don't think I realized that fully until this chapter and that like cutting across it, like the Nihil ship does, is supposed to be impossible and it happens anyway. And it was just, it all makes sense. But it just really changed my perception of how I understood hyperspace, which is like such a Star Wars concept. Like it's been there since the beginning. And it completely blew my mind, this chapter, like the the science nitty gritty of it all.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's something that we've kind of taken for granted ever since Star Wars like has existed. And I, I totally agree with you there, where Coming into this book, I also thought, like, oh, let's just jump into hyperspace from here or here. Like, you know, I didn't know that these are established lanes where, you know, something like what happens with this Nihil ship just like booping across, that should not be possible at all. But as we've Found out with uh, with Mari Santeca, uh, it sure is quite possible <laughs> and <laughs> quite frightening. But yeah, we we have this kind of conference. the The task force is meeting again to discuss what they know. It's kind of summing everything up before. I'm guessing, like, the big battle happens before the, you know, thing has come to a climactic end to the book. And Chancellor So is tuning in from Coruscant. She's not currently aboard the Third Horizon. And, you know, in the moment where she says that, I was told that should be impossible, and the the Santecas try to assure her that it is, Avar and Elzar sense, again, that there's something they're holding back there. She doesn't choose to do anything about it here as well since the Santecas were really helpful. Like they gave all their Naboo lobots to, to help with the yes. um <laughs> to help with the with the array. But at a moment like this, I wonder, it seems kind of odd that like, shouldn't they say something to the Chancellor, maybe like in in confidence in in private afterwards, maybe a private transmission, because they they know something's going on there, but they're choosing restraint. Mm-hmm. It, it just felt it felt a little odd to me. I don't know if if the same thing, if you felt the same or if they're kind of doing the the right thing and kind of holding their cards closer to their uh, to their hands. What did you think about that?
1: My initial sense of it was that, You know, that they knew, obviously, that they knew more that they were letting on. And that maybe it's just that the era we live in, but the sense I got from it is that they're like the corporate interest that isn't saying anything till the government interest. Like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Like, that was my initial sense of this was, you know, they are helpful. And it's not like we, we can say that they're going out of their way to make things difficult for everybody. They're not. But at the same time, like, they're not being as upfront as they could be considering this is a disaster that impacts everybody. Like, Lena So is not opening her hyperspace lanes because it's not, or the Republic's hyperspace lanes, because it's not safe to do. So this, in theory, impacts them. Naboo is in the Outer Rim, but mm. or close enough to it. But it's not the opportune time for them, I guess, to, to say something.
0: I mean, and, and that, like, if they did knowing what we know with with their sister Mari if they did kind of let up their their game and, and tell them hey by the way our sister's actually helping the Nihil and she's able to do this and this and this you know that like they would in some ways they would lose credibility mm-hmm. as well just because you know they're known to be these well-to-do renowned hyperspace uh, I guess initially prospectors but now they kind of run the business almost and so that might damage their interests and credibility as well and it's it's a really sticky situation now that I think
1: of it. I mean that's a fair assessment too for them to have just because you know if you say that hey Mari Santeca is working with the Nile and she's like she is family if I were Lena So I'd be like so how much do you know because you don't know where that begins. So yeah, I can I can see sort of from their perspective why they wouldn't want to say anything because then not only do they compromise their involvement here, they could potentially compromise everything of theirs. So it's frustrating, but if I'm them, I understand why they're not saying anything.
0: Oh, 100%. Like the it, it is in their best interest to keep quiet. It's just a, I, I think it's a matter of when their secret is discovered. I think it I think it will be by someone if it's the Nihil Hill or the Republic or some of the Jedi. I, I think they're not going to be able to keep their secret for much longer. But um, they do find out that the Nihil are directly connected to the disaster. Kind of a Chancellor so asks, you know, what do we what do we know so far? And Avar kind of sums it up of the, the Nihil's involvement with Iriadu, with the 40th emergence as well. I thought it was kind of funny how she also kind of gets a roast of the Nihil in there as well. She <laughs> says, quote, as bad as they are, they're small time. And it's like... <laughs> I would love for the Nihil to hear that. Just like, oh, they're they're small time. They're, they're nothing when it comes to it in the grand scheme of things. I, I love that like small dig there from Avar.
1: <laughs> I just, all else aside, they did just plow a ship sideways through hyperspace. <laughs> like whatever else is coming, not coming, whatever. Like they did just go perpendicularly through hyperspace. Like just a little bit of a threat. Just a touch. <laughs> And I get that they're all like, no, it was a fluke, but come on now.
0: Maybe they should be giving the Nihil a little bit more credit than just, oh, small-time marauders. It's like, do you do you see what they just did? Like, all the damage they caused? Like, come on.
1: Forty emergences is so far. Like, it's a little more than than small-time.
0: Senator Noor is still frustrated at the situation. Uh, you know, he wants the Nihil brought to justice. You know, now we have a name for who's behind this. You know, for all the all of the harm they've brought to the Outer Rim, like the damage has been catastrophic and could still be happening. Avar notes his aide, Jenny Wataro, the uh, Shagrian aide, who we we know is uh, Markian's spy in the Republic. And I couldn't help but wonder, just when Avar noticed, like, oh yeah, there's his aide, you know, Jenny. I wonder, couldn't, Avar sense anything up with her? You know, like, if she's so good at sensing intentions, you know, she just sensed something was up with the Santecas like only seconds ago, it just... I feel like, couldn't she sense something? Maybe maybe Jenny's just very good at, like, you know, maybe she's a great spy and just good at hiding her intentions, but it, like... I don't know, someone as powerful as Avar. I was just like, Can't you see? Like she's right there. It's like maybe it's very unfairly demanding of me, but I just I was just longing for Avar to be like, hang on, Jenny. Like your thoughts seem kinda distract what what's going on (laughs) with you? Like
1: (laughs) my thought with Avar, and like with the Jedi generally, but in this case Avar, is that they are good at sensing emotion, but they sense what they want to sense. So she or or what they expect to sense. So She and Elzar have already talked to the Santecas. They have some sense of who they are. And even like in their first conversation, if I recall, they they were being a little evasive. So they know she knows to expect them to be evasive. And that's like what she's looking for. And she finds it. She has no reason to think a senator's aide would be like spying for Martian Row of all people. So she's not seeing it. There's only so much she can sense, I think within the realm of, like, reality. If she's not, like, if she was meditating and purely in the zone, it might be different. But, like, just in the moment, like, trying to do the day-to-day. And I think it says somewhere in here that there's all these more qualified people in the room and Avar is somehow the one in charge. Like, she's dealing with all of that in addition. So I think that's just, like, it's become white noise at this point. Like, of course everybody's uncomfortable. We're dealing with the, you know, that might be it.
0: That's, I mean, and that's honestly pretty a pretty fair point, you know, <laughs> especially, like, Everyone's probably on some kind of edge right now. Like that's 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 a really good point. Like okay, I guess because they had, like you said, they had the precedent with the Santecas, but there would be no reason to suspect the senator's aide, who you know is at very much the receiving end of the Nigh Hills, like the damage they've caused and are in some ways maybe perpetuating. So yeah, I I I'm being unfair to Avar. I think that's a really good explanation of of what of what could be going. Going on there. So that's uh, I'm usually thank the first one to be
1: unfair to Avar. So, I don't yeah, know. really? <laughs> I, usually, yeah. If somebody's going to be unfair, it's me.
0: Senator Noor, uh, kind of uh, back to him, he says that if there's nothing fundamentally wrong with hyperspace, like the Santecas have told them, but there's this knowledge that the Nihil might have about hyperspace, then we can open up the lanes again. But, and this has been a really contentious point kind of throughout the second part of the book I think it started literally in the first chapter of, of part two was Chancellor So's decision to make the the hyperspace closure and and here she's she's sticking to that decision because you know she says that they can't be sure that the Night Hill won't use this knowledge that they have as a weapon and you know go from I think as she says from marauders to terrorists. And, you know, she says, quote, if the Nihil can attack us in the lanes, then nowhere is safe. It's a really tricky situation because there's been a lot of suffering caused by the emergencies, but also a lot of suffering and riots and kind of just chaos on some of these outer rim worlds caused by the hyperspace closures. Part of me thinks that it's a fair point what Chancellor So is saying, but then it's just... I guess no decision here is easy whatsoever. And and I really, like, I feel for Senator Noor. He's had to deal with a lot of frustration so far, and, and it will continue with Chancellor So's decision here to, to, to keep the lanes closed.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's a completely thankless decision. And again, Lena So is another one where you won't catch me defending her very often, but it is a thankless decision. To have to decide, like, whether you keep it closed for general safety, because anybody going through there could get hurt. Or you open it up, people could get hurt. You close it off, you are effectively cutting off the lifeline of everybody who relies on the lane for supplies and for everything coming from the core or the mid rim. So is, like, it's definitely not an easy choice to make. I, we could arguably go back and say, "Don't colonize the outer rim," and then nobody needs to go out there. But
0: oh, that's yeah, not, there we
1: go. <laughs> that's not her reality anymore. So
0: yeah, they've done that themselves, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, but since that's not the world they live in, <laughs> then yeah, she's got a different yeah. choice to make.
0: It's a lose-lose. It, yeah, it, you know, whichever decision she makes, there's going to be suffering. It's just a matter of of, of what form that manifests. Uh, It's hard, but uh, we do kind of get the blood pumping at the end of the chapter when she does give the order, you know, gather your fleet, go hunt these guys down, bringing them to justice. And that that is how the chapter ends where, you know, she says that she wants them. Uh, every last one of them to be brought to justice. So you really feel like kind of the gathering of forces on one end, as we'll see in in the next chapter. Some things are happening on the Nihil's end as well, but it really we're coming to what might be like a final battle kind of thing. And now this is where the the good guys are getting their forces ready, and uh, you you really feel it in the way that Charles is constructing these these chapters.
1: Yeah every single one of these chapters that we're talking about today kind of ends on like a dun-dun-dun like every single one which is like which is really how you know because this after these chapters like you go right into part three so that's how you know everything's like ramping up
0: exactly and yeah i mean charles does a really great job of kind of getting us to the you know to the top of that roller coaster before things go down it's i think he's writing it really well
1: i do think like generally speaking we were talking earlier about like all the characters up up front who just did not make it past part one. But I think Charles Soule had an utterly thankless job with the first part of this book, because he can't rely on anything we know about Star Wars beyond vague concepts like Jedi, lightsaber, spaceship. And he has to set up this whole world for everybody to then fall into, and like this whole system for everybody to follow. So like, kudos to Charles Soule. Like, we don't give the man enough credit for like laying that groundwork off the top.
0: The task that he had in front of him to start us on this journey into a whole new era of Star Wars. And like you have said, you you know, it's like for 99, aside from like Yoda and, you know, oh, back to, (laughs) you know, like back to the hyperspace, it's unconnected and something entirely fresh and new. And I, I have to agree the way that he's set up this vast ensemble of characters and and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the plot lines are in many different places and now it's kind of all starting to narrow a little bit and, and kind of people ending up in the same space. I think the way that he's written this, the way that he has begun this journey for us, like you say, kudos to... Charles Soule he deserves every last kudo
1: (laughs) It's, it's a tough read the first time like because it is so much and it's so new but this is like one of the books that really rewards a reread because you've read it once already especially if you've like read beyond this and you come back to it then it all feels a lot more a lot more streamlined right off the top because you sort of you're in that world now you know what to expect so so yeah
0: I mean, I I might have to take a a little bit of a hiatus before I eventually reread this because uh, it's a lot of, takes a lot of emotional energy to get through part one.
1: (laughs) Plus you have to read everything else.
0: Exactly. And I plan on it. (laughs) As soon as recording is done for this season, I will just try to catch up as much as I can. You uh, have till October
1: before it starts again. So you have lots
0: of time. Oh, so I've got plenty of time. Oh, that's the best news I've heard all day. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I can give my summary for chapter 34, and we can see what's going on with the Nihil and Markian Roe.
1: Let's do it.
0: In the Great Hall of the Nihil, Markian Ro gathers with Pan Etya, Lorna D, and Kassav. He reflects on the disappointing current state of the Nihil and inwardly vows to begin a new chapter, there and then. Markion reveals that, according to his spy, The Republic has secured the flight recorder and tied the Nihil to the Legacy Run's demise. The three Tempest Runners debate what to do, given the likelihood of the Republic hunting them down. Kassav repeatedly opts to run away from the matter, and Markeon takes his chance. He violently subdues Kassav, leaving the Tempest Runner at his mercy, as Lorna and Pan watch on, shocked. Markeon proposes they get the flight recorder back sending both Lorna and Kasav out on separate missions to make up for their mistakes. A new moment for the Nihil was upon them. Literally, the first words of this chapter were, this is the moment, the new beginning. So, there is no way that I could read that and and not know that something big was going to happen. I kind of figured that... Markion would have, like the beef with between or among him and the Tempest Runners would come to some kind of fruition, especially with Kasav, because those two have, have butted heads a few times in this book. I did not see the way in which that would go down. I think my jaw literally dropped in the moment that it did go down. What were your thoughts on chapter 34 and... This new moment, this new beginning for the Nihil and for Marchion.
1: Okay, so here's the thing I <laughs> I am what is called in our community a Marcion Ho, Marcion Ho, Marcion Ho. So from day one, from the, his first appearance in the book, well, actually from the concept art, I was like, he is an angsty boy with a mask. Who has a bad relationship with his dad? This is Kylo Ren all it's over Kylo again, <laughs> and I'm all about this. And then he shows up in the book and just can do no wrong in my eyes. He's scary and I like it. So, this chapter was just a culmination of that. Like, it's not just that he's scary because he thinks he's scary. He's like, oh, he is genuinely scary. He's got these adults shaking. I know he's an adult too, but like, I get the sense that they're. All older than him and in the audiobook he sounds very young too but i'm like he's got all of them shaking and that's very sexy of him <laughs> yeah. i'm sorry i made this very inappropriate wrong. but
0: <laughs> you're not wrong
1: like yeah so that was my take on chapter 34 and it
0: was it was yeah. hot like, it was hot like <laughs> it is everything
1: he does like cutting off Kasab's hand or half of his hand, dropping him to the ground and, like, stepping on his chest and threatening him. I'm like, yes, you're doing amazing, sweetie.
0: It was just, it was so out of nowhere. And, like, honestly, I mean, from what I have read in this book, you know, one of his biggest, I don't know about issues to deal with, but something that... he was his back was up against is that these Tempest Runners have like, you know, a thousand Tempests, I guess? Uh Yeah, because they, they run... Yeah, the, yeah they followers. Yeah, they've got like, you know, a thousand followers each, and like, they've got the muscle of the Nihil, and so you know, I thought that the way that he would kind of assert his dominance over them would be kind of like a political mashing, you know, like kind of pulling some strings here and there, not literally breaking Kasav's nose, cutting off half his hand, like just... Like putting like and Casav is a tough guy. Like putting him totally at his mercy, and I don't know. My respect, somewhat grudging, but also just like wow. Uh, my respect for Marquion Roe kind of shot through the roof in this chapter, and you know, like you had mentioned, you know, now we can see that he can very much kind of back up the business that he means with some with some action. It was. um you know, I guess I'm I'm not only sweating because I'm wearing a fleece right now, but like you know, it's,
1: <laughs> but also,
0: but also, right?
1: I think it's always a good sign in a villain, generally speaking, when you have a sense of what they're about and what they want, and then, you know, as you're getting towards the climax of the story, they do something that just kind of makes you go whoa, like even they exceeded what you expected of them I think that's always a really good sign and I think this is the moment that Martian does that in this book is this chapter here where you know you've seen him up till now and he's kind of like he's operating in the shadows but like he's kind of nice to Mari and like what's he about and then he does this and you're just like whoa he's crazy but it looks good on him like but it looks good (laughs) yeah I obviously more happened in this chapter than just him being sexy but it's (laughs) <laughs> it's a big part of it.
0: I'm in the same boat here. It, the, the way that he goes about it is just like, I mean, you. the only thing that you can say is whoa. It's just it's like, I don't think anyone could have seen the way, I think just the way that it happened, he is now in his element, and he feels strongly about, about what he has to do and, and why he has to do it. It's no light decision for him to kind of take this drastic move, and as we'll talk about, it is a very... Kind of game-changing move for the Nihil that he is taken, uh, or that he is taking. But you know they've they've got a problem on their hands with the likelihood that the full might of the Republic will be hunting them down, and and they're in a way panicking. You know, right, rightfully so. The, you know, they I guess the combined might of the Nihil is you know can't really compare to the combined might of the Republic and Jedi. So there are some some valid concerns here. And so I guess it was kind of the culmination of Kasav trying to be like, All right, let's just let's just get out of here. Let's just take off and run where Markeon snaps he punches Kassav in the face he breaks his nose we read that his gloves are quote reinforced with armored plates and acceleration compensators which is legit Kasav tries to pull a, a hidden blaster which is illegal to have in the great hall but also Markion always knew that he had it there which I thought was it, it made me chuckle a little bit like he he had him figured out from the beginning
1: I feel like he doesn't let anybody be his tempest runners or be a tempest runner if if like if he doesn't have them totally red Because if you've got somebody unpredictable – in like the highest office in your organization, like you need to know exactly what kind of person they are, so that they don't pull a stunt like this and whip out a illegal blaster in the middle of the great hall.
0: Yeah, that I mean that's a really good point, and and I think from what we read in this chapter, the way that he kind of handles the situa- kind of the the fallout or the the aftermath of what he's doing here to Kasav, he knows them like the back of his hand. They're like an open book that he's just like flipping through. He knows exactly <laughs> which kind of strings to pull for them. He does have them figured out, but that's a really good point that. Like, that's the only way Mm -hmm. that things could kind of progress for Markeon is if he had them, you know, that he bided his time and had them figured out to a T. That's a really good point to, like, kind of solidify the control that he has, even if it's not kind of an outward control of the Nihil, but on his own terms to to know them well enough to kind of suspect or anticipate anything, which he does fantastically in, in this chapter. I think the way that he does kind of take out half of Kasav's hand is uh, is cool <laughs> as hell. Like, he, I think he, from a, a sheath in his wrist, he has pretty much, like, ninja stars, like vibro stars that he just, like, chucks and just, like, cuts off half the hand and, like, part of the blaster. And then he, you know, throws Kasav in a pool of his own blood. And like like you said, he just places his, his boot on his chest. And there's a quote here that I'll read and, and then open the floor to you to kind of just... I don't know. Just uh, Just gush about it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Exactly. He says to Kasav, quote, and I guess he says to all of them here, but, you know, especially to Kasav, I am the eye of the Nihil, as was my father before me. We made this organization what it is, and I will not watch you destroy it with your selfishness, fear, and weakness. You made a mistake at Iriadu, Kasav, and it showed us your belly. You need to remember how this works, chief. The Nihil need to stay strong and one way that happens is by cutting out the weak that kind of was the icing on the cake of this whole scene before he kind of gets into what his next plan is what, what what did you what did you think about that it was just it was a phenomenal vivid moment as well but you can just feel how much this means to him this isn't just about power or you know control this is something that his his father built you know whether he had a good relationship with his father i don't know but this is something that he does not want to see fail something that he's worked very hard to keep up and running you know he's he's the mastermind behind it so we see how much this means to him and that just adds to how much this moment means for the Nihil. What did you think about, about this new beginning, this moment here where he subdues Kasav?
1: So I had a couple of thoughts, particularly about this quote, is that that first line obviously sounds very much like Luke saying, I, I am a Jedi like my father before me. Like, that's what it made me think of. It's like poetry, it rhymes. But Oh my God. <laughs> like, but you know, obviously, Marcian Rowe and Luke Skywalker are two very different people. But that said, For all that they are very different people in their approach, it is clear through this speech that means and motive and the way they go about things, like motive operation aside, it's clear how much this means to him. Not just the cause, but the organization too. I call it an organization. They're absolutely chaotic, but you know what I mean. It's clear that the Nihil mean very much, like they mean a lot to Martian, because of his father, because of what they represent. So rather than, not rather than, sorry, much like Luke, he does put a lot of his faith and his meaning in this group. Except unlike Luke, who has a very tenuous grasp of what Jedi means beyond the spiritual, like, Martian is like, this is how it's going to be. If you're not with me, you're against me. Like, I'm going to cut you out. I'm going to cut out the weak. Like, this is how it's going to be. Yes or yes. And they're all like, well, yes. Yes or yeah. Because <laughs> what else are they going to say? I don't know. It's a chilling moment, but it's like, it's good. It really gets to the heart of who I think he is and who I came out of this book thinking he was. I
0: also just love kind of the comparison and also the co- the contrast between him and Luke. Uh, but all, I hadn't thought of the parallel nature of the quotes there. But you're right. I think this kind of, and I I just thought of this now, I think earlier in the season the thing that he feared or was wary of the most of the jedi was their order was their togetherness their unison that foundation and i figured like maybe he wants to see the same thing with the nihil and i think this confirms it that uh, before he takes this step he is thinking like we don't have any unity we're not together like this it can't work the way that it is so you know uh, like you had mentioned, like before, he's kind of worked in the shadows a bit, you know, kind of left the heavy lifting up front to the Tempest Runners. But when we see, like, they are in some ways on the verge of potentially a collapse, you know, with the Tempest Runner trying to cut and run, you know, or at least Casave and like the structure is is looking like it's going to fall apart here. And we see how much this means to him, like the foundation of the Nihil is something that he has a lot of interest invested in and you know he he does what he has to you know and and like you said it's yes or yes you know like they're after lorna and pan see what he like he just manhandled kasav like one of <laughs> what the are they gonna say he's, exactly <laughs> if there was anyone to kind of match Markion in a fight i think it would have been Kassav. he's the toughest out of them but then just seeing how he just kind of threw him around like a rag doll, like I'm just so impressed with the mind behind Markion, his kind of the manipulative side of him. It's also very troubling, just in the way that he deals with with Mari, even if he is, in some ways, like friendlier to her, but mm-hmm. also torturing her as well. Like we like, see that yeah. it's he's he's complicated. He's complicated.
1: <laughs> but, he needs a hug, but it makes for yeah. He needs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he
0: needs, that would solve everything if we just if we just got a hug, you know? It's it's I think just like seeing him being able to back up his plans with physical action here. It kind of just like the puzzle became complete from the way that he has like a political mind, you know, like with the organization of the Night Hill, his plans, he has the resources with the paths, and now he can also hold his own and more in a fight. It's frightening for what this could mean and probably will mean for the Republic and the Jedi. Yeah.
1: I will say, like, it's a small point, but him cutting off half of Kasav's hand is the scariest thing he could have done. Because if you cut it off at the wrist, you do what Luke Rannigan did not get a new hand. If you cut him off at the elbow, you do what Echo did and get a whole extension. He cut off half his hand, which means either you live with it or you have to go get the other half cut off, and I'm like, I don't know if it was intentional. That is some psychopath behavior.
0: It's like worse than losing. It's worse, it's worse
1: than losing the whole hand, and like I call it psychopath behavior again. It's very sexy of him, but it's still psychopath behavior.
0: <laughs> the two don't have to be mutually. The two aren't mutually, mutually exclusive.
1: exclusive.
0: <laughs> it can be hot and also disturbing. Yeah, <laughs>
1: which I think it distills Martianro Ro perfectly
0: absolutely i i can only agree after reading this i think the the moment kind of this big moment for the night culminates in a really fascinating interaction that the chapter kind of ends on because he is giving kind of these missions to Kasav and lorna he's basically saying we need to get this flight recorder back you both need to make up for your mistakes so Kasav. You know, my spy has told me that the footage that they got from the flight recorder, it's, it's incomplete. The recorder got damaged, so they're sending the flight recorder to a facility to get repaired, intercept them, get it back. That's what you're doing. And then he's sending Lorna D to Elfrona to help her crew kind of finish the mission kidnapping the Blythes. And then, after that, Pan Etya asks if there's anything Markion wants him to do. In the meantime, and Markeon thinks that the Tempest Runners never had asked the eye for what their next move was. It was always kind of them pitching the idea to him, kind of getting his approval for the paths. But this time, Panet was asking, "Okay, like, what do you want me to do? You know, and I think Markeon thinks to himself, quote, the dynamic had shifted. They could all feel it. This... Was huge. Like they, they do vote on it afterwards, where it's like Lorna's like, "Should we still vote?" And Markian's like, "Absolutely. You know, we're, we're still going about the democratic process here." But even if they're voting, they all feel the shift. panetia like verbalized the shift. Like any orders for me, and like from this moment, like from that interaction, we see that this is Markian's show mm-hmm. now. And it was like, th- I think that moment was in some ways even more massive than him absolutely just wrecking Kassav. It was that subtle, just that question, like, what do you want me to do? And that had never happened before. But this is Mark Nihil from that moment on.
1: Yeah, that was the moment I was going to jump ahead to was how subtle a shift it is. And right before this happens, he's like, well, if you don't go along with this idea, then, you know, your tempests are... Your storm hang on, what did he say? Somebody, um, that the storms might be thinking this is their chance for a hostile takeover. So he's threatening a loss of power to them via hostile takeover, and they're like, Well, we don't want that. And then ten seconds later, he effectively strips some of their power away by just giving them orders that they agree to follow. And, you know, Lorna, I think, is the first one to agree. Yeah, so Lorna nodded and after a moment, so did Kassav. So Lorna's the first one to agree because she sees, I think, that that she has lost some of her standing, but also knows that to say anything about it is just going to make it worse. So she's just retaining what she's got and she just goes with it. And then Kassov does too. And Paneta just jumps right into it with the question for the order. So they all see what's happening, but there's not a damn thing any of them can do about it. And I think that's like, Again, the beautiful villainy of Martian is he threatens them with one thing and then does the complete opposite to achieve the same result.
0: He has leverage on all of them as of this moment because it is like, I think, one of Panyatya's clouds that flew the ship that cut across the legacy run. You know, and, and we know what happened on Iriadu with Kassav, Lorna D failed with the 40th emergence. So all of them have done something wrong. And I think. Know, kind of harkening back to you saying that he knows each of them. Like he knows which strings to pull for each of them. Like he's got them under wraps. It, it's, it, it's all on display in the kind of the conversation after, kind of his his monologue after, where he's like you said, he's saying like there could be a hostile takeover. You could lose your power. You also look weak and humiliated to your tempests. You know, he's saying that you can also if you with this plan there's still plunder to be earned there's still kind of glory to be had so and i think at some point he's saying like all of this with a smile on his face to them like you can you can be heroes to them right and and he just the the different faces that he takes on in this chapter in in this moment it's it's fantastic to read and it's hair it's fantastically terrifying and terrifyingly fantastic to read (laughs)
1: It's, it's terrifying, but like, in a good way, because this is not a blustery villain. This is, like, I joke a lot outside of this that Marchand's keeping the Nile together with duct tape and wishes. But, like, not really. This is a guy who's got them all red, like we said. He knows exactly what they need to, like, a big encouraging smile, because that's what they need right now. Whereas, like, ten seconds ago, it was a display of force, because that's what Kasav needed to see. So his mind is working at, like, one and a half speed to keep just ahead of them every single time, and, like, he will change tack as he goes.
0: Even, like, in his vote to keep Kasav around after the failure at Iriadu, because I think Panetya and Lorna were like, let's space him, like, throw him out into the vacuum, like, kill him for his failure, and Markin was like, no, we'll, you know, voting to keep him around, and so he already had that foot already kind of on Kissov's chest from that moment on and we're seeing just all of this leverage come to fruition here and and he knows them all like the back of his hand and and again like you said either they're with him or they're with him there's only one outcome and he and he knows it which is the brilliant part of it and very much just a new beginning for the Nihil and and a cold ending to the chapter two when they're leaving the great hall and he lets them, with let being the key word, walk a few steps away before calling out to Kasav, don't forget your hand. And I was like, oh my God. It's like cold. Like the the temperature just dropped. Like, oh my God, this guy.
1: <laughs> it's such a small thing, but it's such a power move because they're all gone towards the airlock. So don't forget your hand means don't leave it here, which means he has to walk back and bend down to get it. So he's like really putting Kasav in his place. Like the other two messed up. The other two need to make it better. But Kasav is the one who went too far. Kasav is the one who is walking out with his life by the grace of Martian Rowe and nothing else. So he's the one that really has to, like, lower himself to, to like, acknowledge what he's done in that moment. It's so small, but it's, like, so good.
0: I love your point there, too, that he would have to bend down to, like, kind of, you know, just, again, kind of lowering himself to Marcian, like, symbolically, physically, if he has to bend down to pick it up. It's just everything about the way that Markion handled this moment, these moments in the chapter were absolutely brilliant. And I am hereby quite afraid for what that could mean for, uh, for the Republic and for the Jedi. But speaking of the Jedi, we do, I guess in the next, uh, with the Chapter 35 and the interlude, we are back with the Jedi. So I can give my summary for Chapter 35, and we can talk about that one. All right. While chasing down the fleeing Nihil on Elfrona, Belle and Loden notice the Nihil throw the Blythe daughter out of their ship's airlock, leaving her plummeting toward the surface. Acting quickly, Loden tells Belle to save her while he and Indira continue their pursuit. Without a moment's hesitation, Belle jumps out of their vector, determined to catch and save the Blythe's daughter. As he falls, he senses Bee's increasing fear but is able to push that aside focusing in on the Force instead. Bell is able to catch her and assures her she is not alone. Falling from a height far greater than anything he ever trained for, Bell opens himself to the Force, letting it flow through and around him. He's able to land safely and comforts Be, although both of them are unsure if things will be alright. I am kind of proud of myself. Like uh, in in last episode, I think as, as the episode is closing, I wondered if this would be the moment that Bell masters the Force Fall. If he's the one who has to jump out of the ship and save B. So I'm glad that I got that. Like you know, pat myself on the back that I got that right. This is a really fantastic chapter for Bell. He's been one of my favorites. Uh, reading this book, I think he and Loden, the pair of them. Uh, have really stood out to me, but Bell, in particular, I think I love the book Master and Apprentice a lot. So, like, I see a lot of Qui Gon, Obi Wan, kind of uh, the energy be- from Obi Wan to Qui Gon, kind of in Bell to Loden, trying to live up to the expectations and trying to to feel that his master believes in him, and and everything. Just it happens for Bell here. It started in his last chapter where he. Was ready to stare down the Nihil ship as it was firing at them to to protect his master and Erica Blythe, and then he masters the Force Fall in this chapter and saves B. What did you think about chapter thirty-five and really what it means for Bell Zedifar?
1: Taking it directly after 33, 34, chapter thirty-five is such a nice breath of fresh air. It's like yes, we raved about chapter thirty-four and it's awesome. For Martian, but they're also, you know, the villains of the story overall. So after these two chapters, like the Nile are mobilizing, the Republic is kind of mobilizing to deal with the threat, like we needed a win. And I think chapter 35 is that win. It's this thing that like Bell has struggled with up till now in the book, and it's kind of life or death, like you have to master it, or this is it, and somebody else is depending on you now. And I don't think there was ever a doubt in my mind that Bell was gonna pull it off. Especially once the kid became involved. I was like, they're not going to make a kid go splat on the ground. Like, that's not what this is. But it was such a good moment for him because we don't get enough descriptions of people, like, throwing themselves into the force like that. Like, we see it a little bit in um, Master and Apprentice, like, that Obi-Wan is struggling with connecting to the force. And then when he finally, like, it connects for him, that's when he can, like, you know, move in a way he never could and fight in a way he never could. And I think this was, like, that moment for Bell. That's what it reminded me of.
0: I love Master and Apprentice, so I love that connection as well. To the I, I know exactly the moment that yeah you, uh, that you're mentioning there, right in the there. like
1: the final fight.
0: Yes, he, he's able to do the dance like yeah. he'd seen Qui Gon do as well. It's uh, that's giving me chills just thinking about that moment. F- fantastic book, but yeah, I mean, Loden like it's pretty much instant. They see B fall, and Loden's like, yeah, I think he puts the vector into a dive. He's like, all right, you got to jump, save her. I'll go after the others. He does say, quote, I'm so proud to have been your teacher. Sounds a lot like some last words to him before he goes off and gets killed. But then I I have already predicted, unfortunately, that I don't think Loden's going to make it out, whether if it's this book or just in general. But given that quote, I'm not entirely—especially with Belle wondering, like, I don't think things are going to be all right. I— I think that Loden might die in part three. So that quote did not help me and my fears as well, just because I, I love them both. But
1: taking it for what it is, it's a lot funnier if you think Loden is saying that to Bell because he's throwing him out of the ship going, well, I'm never going to see him again. <laughs> <laughs> not funnier. It's messed up. Bell's a teenager, but if it helps you feel better. Read it in that context, like Loden is just being very dramatic and going, "Well, kid, it was nice knowing you." Anyway, and then just throws him out of the ship.
0: I like that take. It makes it makes me feel a little bit more lighthearted about it because uh, that is something that Loden would say. Was like, "All right, you know,
1: <laughs> it was nice knowing you, Bell. I'll think about you sometimes."
0: Right. <laughs> I'll be sure to write. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, one of the first things that did uh, stand out to me when he jumps out is that. That's what happened. He unclips his harness and he jumps. Like, there was no hesitation. There was no push from Loden, like, when he pushed him off the cliff. You know, it's... And that when he's falling, like, he forgets about everything. Like, the ground, the sky, like, bees fear. And he only focuses in on the Force. And it, he's come so far, especially compared to the chapter when Loden did throw him off the cliff. Like, I, th- I feel like, in a way, this is like a parallel moment where he just he goes for it he knows what he has to do he jumps like there is no question no hesitation and also I think you know the stakes are pretty high when there is a little girl falling to the surface of the planet in danger there is no time to hesitate and I just I was really proud of Bell there where he just did it he, he unclipped the harness and he jumped and that spoke like just like those few words spoke volumes of how far Bell Zeffar has come in his courage but then also his determination to do what is necessary in in this moment
1: it's such a like little happy bubble of a chapter because it's it is ostensibly bell saving a kid but it's really about bell and his connection with the force And sort of finally bringing what he knows of the Force and what he feels of the Force together with the lessons that Loden's been trying to teach him just in this book. Like, I don't think this book was the first time Loden's thrown him off of something, but, you know, as far as we know. So, you know, being a Jedi, not about saving oneself, it's about saving others. Like, it's really him connecting with the lesson, this lesson and all of the lessons I think that they've been teaching him throughout his life. So it's just such a good moment for this character.
0: I mean, uh, and I think you, you had mentioned, like, one of the quotes that stood out to me in the chapter as well, which is, like, him understanding and kind of coming to terms with what it means to be a Jedi, which I think is, is, is really fantastic. Um, just the way that, you know, when he's falling, opening himself to the Force, and he thinks of, you know, instead of kind of thinking the danger that he's in now, you know, plummeting to the Earth as well, like, he thinks of B. And, and how—because I think this is after he he catches her and kind of reassures her that she's not alone. He's thinking that it's unfair for a kid to have to be in this situation. Like, yes, absolutely. Like, you're right. But I think there's this quote that I'll, I'll read here from what Bell is, is thinking in this moment. "'The wind was not his enemy, nor gravity itself. They were both part of the Force, just as he was, just as the child was. If he fought them, he was fighting himself.' He should not try to fight. He should try to understand. Bel Zedifar relaxed. And what you had mentioned, being a Jedi was not about saving oneself. It was about saving others. I was just blown away by by this. And it's such a huge moment where he thinks not of his own fear of the situation that he's in, but he thinks about what him being a jedi him being able to wield the force means for those around him and 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 saving others it it was it was selfless realization and it it just it puts a stamp on this huge moment for him realizing what all of this training all of these experiences have have meant for him and and who he's supposed to be and i think in this moment in this chapter alone he has grown into the shoes that have that load and it's kind of like placed there for him and i'm just i'm so proud of bell in in this chapter
1: i think it's a nice contrast too to make to like avar and elzar that we see two chapters ago because they're like the adults of the order they're a master and a knight respectively and they are like worn down by their responsibility avar especially we were talking about her not being able to make that connection to the assistant and none of that like she is overwhelmed with her work with what else is going on with her position bell isn't there yet bell is still a padawan bell is young enough to let himself just be open to the force as an objective experience as just a part of himself rather than as a tool to be used for somebody else it's just a natural extension of who he is and i think like he kind of stands as like the proxy the emblem of the padawans of the order they haven't been worn down by the galaxy yet they are it's just them and the force and that's what it is whereas like the adults like Avar and Elzar are we see it in them are are feeling the effects of having to be responsible during a disaster like this so yeah i think it's a good it's a good moment for bell like it's such a nice distillation of of what it is to be a padawan right now
0: that's i like how you extended his experience and like what he is discovering here to the Padawans of the Order. I, I really love that connection. I hadn't thought of that, and I think it's really like it's true. You know, in, in a way, they haven't been jaded by the galaxy yet. I think you've you'd also said yet.
1: Well, the, the, a ship just blew up. Like, give, yeah. them, <laughs> give them a little bit of time. It'll right. hit them
0: if the realization doesn't hit them. Maybe an emergence might, because they're still happening. No.
1: <laughs> well, like not even not even High Republic. Like, jump ahead to like. The Clone Wars. The Clone Wars is always on my mind because it's just such a bad example of what to do with kids. Like Ahsoka is I mean I love the Clone Wars but as somebody who teaches children this is such a bad example. Like Ahsoka is 13 years old and the best way they can think to give her training is to send her to the front and make her a commander at 13. Like she never gets to have this pure connection with the force that Belle does because this is not the world Ahsoka grows up in, right? So it's a shame that like by the time we get to the end of the Jedi Order that they get this jaded this fast and they never get to really connect to the Force in this way.
0: The galaxy will jade them. It's just at a matter of what pace, and and we're right. I mean, there's... uh, The world jades us
1: all, right? It's just a matter of one. Too
0: real. Too real. (laughs) Too
1: real. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Too real.
0: (laughs) No, but I mean, but Star Wars connects to our our lives, and so that is very, very true. Uh, It's it's something that we all experience in different ways, and I just... I, I appreciate that Belle is able to have this understanding this moment uh in the first place. Because you're right, at, at some point, like Padawans won't really have that luxury when there's a galaxy at war. Uh, it's it's a very different landscape. And so I guess now, you know, even as as there have been plenty of terrible moments in this book, as far as disasters go, I'm glad that Bell does still have the ability to have a moment like this where he can come to that realization. It is a triumphant end to the chapter where he does he does save her, he does stick the landing. But of course the chapter has to end on kind of like a foreboding note where both B and Bell are like not entirely convinced that everything will be okay. So you know it's it's a triumphant end but then also we're left with that doubt like what's going to happen with Indira and Loden. I do think that your thoughts on kind of the Padawan's experience with the force relative to kind of the mass like Avar, Elzar, they have much bigger decisions, much like, you know, much more complex situations that they're part of in relation to kind of being a Jedi. I think your thoughts really tie in nicely to what we get in the interlude where there are some big decisions, a grander scale of what it means to be the Jedi and the galaxy as a whole those conversations do happen I don't have a summary for the interlude it's it's pretty brief but there's still a lot that goes on here so let's just dive right into it we are with Jedi Master Joro Mali uh, who is aboard the Jedi starship the Ataraxia which translates to state of serene calmness and so added to the panacea which was a remedy for all diseases like they've got their ship names pretty on point uh maybe two on point i don't know
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i didn't know any of that so
0: neither did i until google told me Jora, she's tuning into a Jedi Council meeting, which is one of her last, because we, I think, read much earlier in the book that she is going to be taking up her post as the head of the Jedi contingent on the Starlight Beacon when it does launch. And we learn a lot about her philosophy as a Jedi during the chapter, starting with her thinking that she could serve the light more effectively when she's out in the galaxy rather than cooped up in the Council chamber. So... I will say my thoughts towards Jorah do change in this interlude alone, but starting out, I was like, yeah, no, you're right. Like I got some like Qui-Gon vibes here where it's like, I want to be out there kind of being the change I want to see in the galaxy rather than debating about it in the council chamber. So it was a cool initial thought to hear as far as her philosophy Where I guess we see that the same issues that Qui-Gon, let's say, had with the council about being too deliberative, like talk things over and don't get things done, like that's still seemingly an issue kind of hundreds of years before.
1: One thing that this book in particular because of its focus on like the genetic council and stuff like that does really well is it does set up that sort of like where it all goes wrong. 250 years from now like you can see it starting to go wrong now it's not i think this was pitched as like the golden age of the jedi but if it's golden age and everything's fine that's not particularly interesting whereas if it's like golden age and it's like now you can see the cracks forming in like the jedi order and all of this kind of stuff that's what makes it interesting and i think this is like a really good chapter it's not really a full chapter but it's like a really good moment for that it's like sort of seeing where where the cracks are and where the problems are
0: I love that. I love that a lot. It's like, I feel maybe it would be less realistic if the fall kind of like just came out of nowhere. Like here yeah. we can, like, like you're saying, like we see some cracks in the wall starting to form where, you know, it's, I mean, we know what happens. So granted, we don't, like it will never take us by surprise because we know how it ends, but it makes it a little bit more, I don't know, like it makes more sense, feels more real to see that it wasn't just like overnight. It's it's a gradual uh, process yeah
1: because if the if the foundation of the jedi order was rock solid then one incident would not be enough to crumble the whole order but if the cracks have been there for centuries then it makes a, a lot more sense that all it took was this one incident to be the final incident it's not it wasn't the, it was the only one it was like the, like the the writing was on the wall it was coming and nobody wanted to see it and then suddenly it did like look at even look at the prequels and how quickly they are to be like, Oh, we haven't seen the Sith in a thousand years. Like clearly it's not a Sith. And then only after Qui-Gon is dead, they're like, Oh wait, it was the Sith. And then like jump ahead ten years and then like our ability to perceive the forces diminished. Like you did this to yourselves.
0: You've done that yourself. So like
1: in your in your willful ignorance, you kinda did this to yourselves. And like we're saying it's not that generation that messed it up. It's like they are the product of a problem that started 250 years ago.
0: I mean, you had mentioned a pretty iconic quote uh, earlier in, in this episode. You had said, you know, it's poetry, it rhymes. I noticed a rhyme in something you just said right now with uh, with something you had mentioned at the kind of towards the top of the episode, mentioning that, you know, Avar might not have sensed kind of the deception in uh, Jenny Wataru because maybe she wasn't expecting to sense it here. You're mentioning that you know the Jedi, like the cracks are there, but they don't they don't want to see it. even if they, even if they the cracks are there, they choose not to or they're not like allowing themselves to be aware of it. Uh, it seems like kind of a, a similar point where we see the things that we want to see mm-hmm. or that we expect to see. Uh, And I think that's very true with the fall of the Jedi.
1: Yeah, I I think in both instances, they are focusing on what they expect. And then it's the unexpected that kind of comes around on the other side and knocks the wind out of their sails. Right. And it's it's the same mistake, which makes me think it's not a fault specifically on Avar or like who says the quote in a tie is specifically on Mix Windu. It's it's the order. It's the way they're taught. It's the way they're taught to deal with the force and the way they're taught to perceive it. Like that's what does this to them.
0: They are getting down to business discussing how the Jedi are to proceed because the Chancellor has asked them or requested them to directly help in hunting down the Nihil. So this is like the age-old question, you know, what role will the Jedi play in the matters of the Republic? And here is where we kind of get a little bit of a flag for me. I'm still trying to to determine whether it's a red flag or not, but Jorah is thinking, quote, Great emphasis was placed on interpreting the will of the Force, listening for the voice of the Force, taking direction from the Force, and so on. Jorah found that a little tiresome, a philosophical vortex, which, okay, that that part's fine. Like, I can't really argue with that. It can be kind of a, a cycle that just, you know, it keeps on going, a vicious Unhelpfully cycle. Unhelpfully
1: high concept.
0: Unhelpfully high concept. <laughs> and it was after she thought that, which is where we get, quote, for her, It was very simple. The Jedi were deeply connected to the light side of the force. Whatever choice any Jedi made was, therefore, the will of the force. I wrote, that seems problematic, where it's like, just because it's like, anything the Jedi do then, it's the will of the force, guys. Like, that that was, like, the more I think about it, that's just a red flag for me. like, that, it just, it seemed highly problematic for that line of thinking, where it's like we know the light side so whatever we do whatever any like any choice any jedi makes is the will of the force uh, i don't know that rubbed me the wrong way <laughs>
1: that's like a two-sided danger zone because on the one hand you've got whatever choice we make is the light side of the force because we are the jedi and we are connected to it and then on the other side if somebody makes a choice you don't agree with then that makes them what not a jedi like what you can't win with an argument like that because if if it's decidedly not a light side choice, then I guess they're not a Jedi. But then what does that make them? Because the Sith, as far as they know, aren't around. And like, they're not talking about it. And what does that make you then? Where does that leave you? So it's this kind of, I think, the beginnings of this very strict dogma that then goes into, into what we see a couple centuries from now.
0: I kind of made a real world connection there with... I feel like there's a lot of like uh, toxic Christianity in the world, and often out here, the explanation for the Crusades was like, "Oh, they what they did? They said they were Christian, like they weren't they weren't really Christian. Like you mm-hmm. know, it, it wasn't that wasn't really Christianity. But then like it's like, what does that make them? What does that make you? Like who gets to decide what is, and is not? I thought about that, where it's like it seemed quite real reading that that moment there
1: but we see we see that in any organized group you'll see them yes this is what we stand for yes and then anybody who does not stand for it it's like well they're not really one of us and it's like but they are like you have to take out your own trash when you see like i know i made that a little extreme and like a jedi making a morally ambiguous choice is not trash but like in any group like you you have to deal with your own problems you can't say we have no problems And that anybody who subscribes to your belief but doesn't behave in a way that you think is acceptable is still a part of your group. You can't just be like, that's not us. That's not who we are. Like, you need to deal with that. And I think that's another reason they ended up where they did is because, well, we are the light side. And anybody who doesn't make a light side choice just isn't one of us. And that's obviously not true. So
0: like you can't improve or you can't become better if you don't own your mistakes and like see, you know, which is also kind of a connection to the state of the U.S. reckoning with its own history uh, over and over and over again. Uh, It's like, how can you become better if you don't acknowledge the faults in the first place?
1: Canada, too, relying way too much on an image of we're so polite. And it's like, but look at your mess. Look yeah. at what you've done. Like and only now is that being done. So like there's so much in this where you can connect it to the era we're living in where it's like it's fantasy and it's sci-fi and it's it's and in space but it's not that far removed politically like geopolitically from from where we're at
0: 100% like it's you know I think what we create is informed by our experiences and our realities and so there are, mm-hmm. yeah I mean there have to be connections and the Star Wars that we read to the world that we that we live in. We get a kind of uh, interesting tidbit here, kind of uh, harkens to Mace Windu in the prequels where I think Master Adampo says that the Jedi aren't a military force, so, you know, we shouldn't intervene here. And then another Master responds, quote, but we have been a military force in the past. In fact, our predecessors waged and won the Great Sith War, which... You know, know, kind of reminded me of maybe some old Republic hints, but I thought it was cool that, you know, they brought that into the conversation and the the Great Sith War. I think that the problematic moments kind of continued, uh, in, my, in my opinion, when Master Shin asks, why are we talking about history, you know, when we should be concerned with the present, not the past? Like, okay, yes, the Jedi's role at the current moment is what's being decided, but as a student of history but like myself what role does history play if not to inform the present so like that was like why are we why are we talking about history here like that that's the point you know it's just that's that was also just another flag another problematic moment i just i don't know
1: what's that thing of like those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it like they're walking right into that it's like well why does that matter and it's like if you don't know why it matters like i don't even know what to tell you
0: you're just you're missing the point master shin if that's if that's the case it's... like
1: master adampo is saying we are not a military force and then master anassis is going but we have been okay taking just those two arguments this is not who we are but this is what we used to be look at what we used to be and like play that through to conclusion what happened there How, like what happened when the jedi were soldiers like there was the great sith war but that was more connected with their beliefs and their power system because the Sith are also force users so it's far more relevant than acting as soldiers for the Republic yeah and whatever they choose here like you know Mace Windu can say we're keepers of the peace not soldiers all he wants but they're already laying that groundwork for them to become the go-to protective force for the Republic in this decision because they didn't look at their own history
0: yeah that's that's a really good point where like the precedent kind of had been set you know like that that card had already been played so You know, why not bring the Jedi involved into the war like it's it's already happened. So it's 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 maybe in some ways like to be expected from what history has taught the Republic. Master uh, Yariel Poof kind of drops one of the best quotes I think I've read in a Star Wars book. I'll read it for us here. Uh, where I think an, another master is saying that, you know, we have to represent, like, kind of em- embody, like, peace to the to the galaxy. And Yariel Poof says, quote, "'Yes, but we are guardians of two ideals, are we not? Sometimes, unfortunately, they come into conflict. We must always strive for peace, but also justice. Peace without justice is flawed, hollow at its core. It is the peace provided by tyranny.'" I think I just, like, put the book down at that point. I just, like, had to just bask in that where it was just... That's, like, a beautifully crafted quote, like, by, you know, by Charles and, and, and his writing. But it's just... It kind of just, sent, like, sent shockwave through me. Like, that's one of the best truth bombs that Star Wars will drop. I was really, really impressed with with that take from mm. Master Poof there.
1: It's such a good point that like I don't think we consider enough because in in Star Wars not High Republic but like everything else the goal is always like peace peace let's just stop the fighting but it's like okay you stop the fighting and then what I've said it before elsewhere but Alphabet Squadron not my favorite trilogy it's just I get a hard time with Alexander Freed's battle math but The third book in Alphabet Squadron is so good at making this exact point that, like, with peacetime comes the need for justice. It comes the need for, like, for, like, redemption, for healing, for justice. Like, there is a step past fighting is finished. And it sucks that it's going to take them almost 300 years to get to that point and then for it to all go wrong again, but at least the steps were put in there. And I think that's, like, such a good thing at the core of star wars like such a good message and i don't think it gets addressed enough i
0: mean if it's it's a problem like you know uh like post return you know in the in the days of the the new republic it's an issue at the heart here of the high republic it's it's a through line through star wars and it's uh I think I'd agree. It's too easily and often overlooked here even even by a Jedi who says, you know, we, we must always kind of look for peace, but but what does that peace look like? What does that peace actually mean in practice if there if it lacks the justice that it needs to be whole and complete? It's a, it's a great commentary of Star Wars as a whole and in in this moment as well. Ultimately the vote is split. I think one of the masters is missing, so there's 11 Jedi voting, so the vote is split five to five, and Jora, you know, kind of, you know, it's, I thought it was maybe a little bit cheesy that, like, it has, it's a tie, and she's the one to break the vote, you know, it's kind of convenient, but, you know, is what it is there, and, and she says that in any decision she makes, she asks herself, quote, "'Does the action I'm about to take bring more light to the galaxy?' I think, like one of her thoughts at the beginning of the interlude, initially, I'm like, it's a fair question to ask. But I think still, with her asking that, am I going to bring more light to the galaxy? It still, I think, in my opinion, assumes the Jedi to be the arbiters of the light, which I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like, I just think of The Last Jedi quote where... Luke is saying I think something to the extent of
1: oh to say if the Jedi die the light dies is vanity
0: yes exactly and like I I thought of that here where I, I you know I guess comparatively from like the Sith the Nihil to the Jedi like the Jedi are more in line with the light than the others in that situation but I think it's a big mistake to think here that the decisions necessarily bring light to the galaxy and how Jorah is just very certain that that it is always a possible outcome for her to bring light to the galaxy. I just I don't think the light and the Jedi go hand in hand. Maybe they often do, but it does. It's not a it's not a given. Or maybe it shouldn't be considered as a given in in my take.
1: This is just occurring to me now, and I really don't mean to drag Jorah Malley because I have nothing against her, but her going. My vote. What which way should I vote that would bring more light to the galaxy? But by her own reasoning, either vote. Is a vote on the light side because it's all Jedi voting. Oh my. <laughs> so the Jedi who vote one way, it's it's the light because it's a choice the Jedi made, but on the other side, it's the same thing. So I'm not saying that Jorah has decided she's the arbiter of the light, but I it almost feels that way a little bit now. And maybe that's just the read of the read I've taken on it following our conversation, but I'm not sure where she stands if like her vote is the right one and then what does that make of the other vote or is it the will of the force that they will have this conversation and it's the will of the force that she will make whatever decision she makes like where does she come down on it in this ideology of hers in in this belief so it's just i don't have an answer i'm just wondering wondering about it now
0: i think you're right where the decision she's making and maybe she's saying which decision like what action will bring more light to the galaxy so maybe like either vote would bring light. It's just like this one might bring more light to the mm-hmm. galaxy than the other, you know. So maybe the other vote isn't necessarily bringing darkness, but I do think that by her logic, by, by her thoughts, not ours, like, you know, she has said, you know, the, the choices of the Jedi coincide with the light. And so this, her choice here, she, uh, she, I mean, she has to perceive that she knows out of them what will bring the most light. So the others are kind of like, lesser on the light scale i get i don't, I
1: don't know i um, i unless say, it's all the will of the light that they even have this conversation
0: which you know the way that she ends the interlude it may maybe so because she does kind of throw the the will of the force back at uh back at the council there so you know may, maybe so that's is. probably where
1: she comes down is like that one way or another it was the will of the force for them to vote the way they did and for them to have this discussion at all that's the nice thing about having so many Jedi in the High Republic is like with the Clone Wars and like the prequel era, you've got a few, but you've really only got Anakin and Obi-Wan. So you got to kind of pick where you come down on it. And then the Jedi that aren't, those two are like this big nebulous collective that kind of breaks up a bit in the Clone Wars. But here you've got so many and they've all got their own points of view that you don't have to agree with everybody, which I like. Like that's how it should be in, in any organization with any group of characters. Like you don't You don't need to be on the same page as everybody else.
0: That would make it less interesting. It would make (laughs) it vastly less interesting. I think a a friend of mine once said, like, if you're in a room where everyone agrees with you, then you're in the wrong room. Yep. That does leave us to the end of the interlude. That leaves us to the end of part two, but also to the end of this episode. Arzu, thank you so much for taking the time to be here to talk about these chapters in the interlude. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. I never get to talk about books like this because when we cover it on The Geeky Waffle, we're talking about the whole book in about this amount of time. So I never could get to go like in detail like this. So this was a lot of fun.
0: It's I mean, I've been I mean, this is three seasons now. So clearly I enjoyed as well. But I can, to... I can
1: see why this is very addictive.
0: <laughs> that validates me. So thank you for the affirmation. <laughs> Uh, but, Arza, you had mentioned the Geeky Waffle, the, you're the host of the Space Waffles podcast. Could you plug any work or social media or any projects that you're working on for the listeners if they wanted to find your work online?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you can find me mostly on Twitter. I, I live on Twitter. Um, I'm at Arzu, I mean, it's just my first name, last name. Um, or if you search Arzu D2, that's my username. So, you'll find me. Like we said, I uh, host Space Waffles on the Geeky Waffle Network. I write for the site as well. So, um, spoiler light book reviews, very in-depth TV recaps. That's all on our website. And then my site, dot 2com is where you can find an in-depth review of every single canon Star Wars novel that is out. Some are more in-depth than others, I admit. It kind of depends on, on what I gravitated to in the book. And very shortly, within the next couple weeks, I'm starting the year of Kenobi on the site. I say year. We're already two months into the year. But So I am reading the Kenobi Legends novel, rereading, I've read it before, and then reading the Jedi Academy books for the first time.
0: Hey everyone, this is Editing Andrew jumping in really quick. When we stopped recording, Arzu realized she meant to say she'll be reading and reviewing the Jedi Apprentice books for the first time, not the Jedi Academy books. Again, to clarify, she meant the Jedi Apprentice books. Now, back to Arzu.
1: So this is was a childhood curiosity right after The Phantom Menace came out. I wanted to read these books, and then we moved somewhere that didn't sell them, so I couldn't. So then now that I'm an adult with disposable income, I tracked every single one down, <laughs> and I'm going to read them for the first time and review them on my site. So if you want to find that, that's rzud2.com.
0: That is quite fantastic, and maybe I'll have to see if I can lock down some copies as well to read along with your reviews, but that is absolutely amazing the year of Kenobi is a great year indeed and
1: uh, (laughs) it's a a good year to be an Obi-Wan fan
0: oh yes I am looking forward to that show Uh, probably just as much as maybe not just not as much as you because you're a super Kenobi fan you can't see it
1: listening to it but I am wearing an Obi-Wan Kenobi shirt (laughs)
0: And We love Obi-Wan on this podcast, or uh, just I feel like everyone loves Obi-Wan, just collectively. Uh,
1: (laughs) What's not to love? He's never done a thing wrong in his life.
0: (laughs) He is infallible, uh, and that is it. Um (laughs) Uh, But listeners, I will post the links to Arzu's work in the episode description. Arzu, again, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting about some Star Wars some Light of the Jedi. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Before we close out today, instead of giving a discussion question, I'll instead be doing another Search Your Readings livestream over on Instagram to discuss part two of the book. So on Thursday, March 10th at 6 p.m. Eastern, I'll be live on Instagram to talk about part two. I hope to see you all there and have a chat about the book so far. If you have any questions for me, whether about Light of the Jedi, the show, or Star Wars in general, you can send them to me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or you can send them via email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com with the subject line, search your readings. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com outerrimreads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is hosted by Andrew Geha, this episode was edited by Andrew Geha, and it is produced by Andrew Geha as well as Simon van Bakum. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 54 to kick off part 3, the final stretch of Light of the Jedi, so until then, sit back and enjoy, there's a storm coming, the Nihil vs. the Republic, grab your popcorn.